We are grateful to be uh, here with you today, of course. It's always a joy to worship with our church family and to be exposed to the wonderful riches of God's Word together. We pray that if you don't have a Bible, you'll raise your hand so one of our guys will bring one to you because the Bible is essential uh, to the time of study that we have on Sunday mornings. If you don't have it, you will be lost about what we're talking about. So if you need a Bible, please raise your hand and we'll get one to you there. There is one question that dominates the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you've got your scripture, you can open up to chapter 6, as we're going to be opening up this new chapter here today, having finished up chapter 5 last week. This one question that dominates the book is, how can we find satisfaction in this life? Solomon, the author, author, helps us to work our way through this question by wisely guiding us to think about it in more directed ways, using various examples Sometimes the example of his own life to help us draw conclusions about whether satisfaction is even possible in the world that we live in and whether there is any way to find it apart from our God. But as this question rolls around in our minds, as we seek for its answer, there is always just one step away, an unavoidable reality that we must consider, an unavoidable reality that each one of us will eventually have to make sense of. And it is an aspect of life that only one very special human being has ever overcome. That reality is death. We see it in chapter 2's famous poem about the sovereignty of God over time and over every season, where the very first characteristic of life that the preacher mentions is the fact that life doesn't last forever. You might recall the words in chapter 3 where it says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. There it is, right there at the beginning of this declaration of the sovereignty of God that, that the life that we live is not forever here on earth. God has sovereignly ordained death to be a universal part of man's experience. In chapter 2, when the preacher attempts to find satisfaction in wisdom, he thinks that perhaps he can can find joy and contentment in the things that we can know. He gathers to himself great knowledge and seeks understanding. But his scholarly pursuits will not allow him to ignore a very simple dilemma. No matter how much a man might learn, no matter how much he advances beyond his peers in wisdom and knowledge and understanding the wise man still dies the same as a fool does. Verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Friends, we cannot think our way out of the grave. And what about wealth? In the same chapter, Solomon attempts to find satisfaction and joy in his possessions, in the material goods that he can gather to himself. But he cannot help to see, he cannot help but see that the rich man will eventually die and leave his fortune to others. Perhaps someone even less worthy than himself 
Verses 18 and 19, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. In chapter 3, verse 19, our author draws a particularly gloomy conclusion when he reasons that what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. Now surely man does have many advantages over the animals of the world, chiefly that we were made in God's image and they are not. But when it comes to the reality of death, every man must contend with it, just as any other creature that has breath in its lungs must eventually experience it. And so today, as we begin chapter 6, the author deals a bit more directly with this immovable object that we call death. Even if one can find satisfaction in life, can that satisfaction hope to survive the transition that we experience when life on earth is over? So we are in chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes, and today we're going to be studying together verses 1 through 6. I will read it out loud for you now. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he." Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. The hard realities of wealth and prosperity continue to reveal the many grievous evils of life to us here in chapter 6. That's a term that's familiar to us if we were here last week and the week before because we spoke of grievous evils to end out chapter 5. Solomon the preacher has explained to us that there are essentially two distinct ways that we can live. And he's, he's exploring both of those options in life. First of all, we can live lives under the sun, as Solomon calls it. Lives that are focused on the material world around us and our own perceived control over it. Those who live under the sun live as if there is no God. They live their own way as if their satisfaction depended primarily on their own choices and their own efforts. But there is another way to live, and it is hinted at throughout this book. We know that we're going to get there eventually, this summation of all this learned through this philosophical exercise of Ecclesiastes. There are those who live beyond the sun, with their eyes set on what is eternal. They are not so caught up with this world that they ignore God who is supernatural. They're not so caught up in the natural that they can't see that there is something greater than themselves. Those who live beyond the sun put their trust in God who alone is sovereign. 
life beyond the sun is to still live within the confines of the same flawed and fallen world, but it is live with an eternal perspective that understands that all of our happiness and satisfaction is dependent on God's presence and blessing over our lives. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, as in many places in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is helping us think through the mentality of life under the sun. He's revealing to us some of its critical limitations. The verses that we read today describe some of the best case scenarios for the man who tries to disregard God and live on his own, according to his own desires and his own will. As we have seen him do before, the author delivers this idea by describing a hypothetical man who lives according to that worldly approach, the first option of life, which is living under the sun. We see in verse 2 that there is a man whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. This hypothetical man that Solomon speaks of here is wealthy. Isn't that something that most people desire in this world, especially those who are living in a secular state of mind who do not regard God? Wealth is very important Some people say that money drives the world. I would not agree with that, although I know that it drives the wretchedness of man. This man has many possessions. He's been able to spend his resources to gain the the things that he wants the most. And he has garnered the honor of others. His perceived success in life has caused the people around him to look at him with admiration and respect. This man seems to have achieved many of the goals that those in the secular world are shooting for. Surely they would believe that he is well on his way to meaningful and enjoyable life. But then a potential snag is identified here in Scripture. Though this nameless character has gained many of the things that man believes are key to unlocking contentment, he does not have the power to enjoy all these things that he has accumulated. I want us to notice two things that the passage makes clear to us here. So let's look at these scriptures closely. Solomon tells us that the man has much good because God has given him much. Did you see that? God is the one who has given him these things. So even though he has put all sorts of effort, no doubt, into accumulating these possessions, even though he has worked hard to attain his wealth, and even though he has been careful about his reputation so that others would honor him, God is the one who has given these things to him. He may not acknowledge God. He may not honor God. He may not thank God. But God is ultimately behind every blessing that he enjoys. There is no good thing that you have in your life that God has not given to you. The breath that is in your lungs is oxygen that God has provided. Your heart beats because God determined to give you a soul. He determined to animate the matter that makes up your body. The world that you live in each day is a context that God spoke into existence and sustains with His mighty will. The sun rises on His commands. It sets on the same. Do you ever stop to think about how utterly dependent upon God that you are? He can and does supply every most basic need that man has. When King David prayed over the resources that he had put aside for the building of the temple, you might remember that King David was a man of of great power and he had conquered many other nations around him. He was a faithful man of the, the Lord, not perfect, very flawed. 
he desired to build a temple to the Lord God near the end of his reign, and God had denied him that freedom. So David did the next best thing. He accumulated resources for his son Solomon who would take the throne after him. And in a ceremony in which he's dedicating these resources, listen to what he says in verse 12 of 1 Chronicles 29. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly to you? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. You see the humility in David. David would be the first to confess that he's not a a man worthy to be in the presence of God. And yet there is so much to admire in this man who had a heart that pursued the Lord God and recognized that even the great things that we can try to give to him, we only can give them to him because he's given them to us. Because he has entrusted us with a divine stewardship that we might have resources to allocate to the needs of the gospel in the world. And so as they prepare to build the temple, yes, he is a wise and mighty king, has gathered all these good things, and he says, but all these good things are yours anyway, Lord. I don't even know how we could take any credit for this. You are the one who has given Friends, there is no good thing in your life that you have not received from the hand of God. And this is especially true of those who call on the name of the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-3 through 3, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, says the Apostle Peter, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. You see how complete that is? How total it is? So even though this man has experienced the generosity of a sovereign God, though his Creator has supplied his needs and given him a body which is able, and a mind which can reason, and a heart which can feel, the man has lived as though God is not even there. He has lived as though he is his own sovereign king. And if you believe in God, but act as though he doesn't matter, friends, as though he doesn't factor into the equation of your life, then you expose an incredible ungratefulness in yourself. No matter how hard you have worked to get yourself where you are, you wouldn't have gotten anywhere were it not for the Lord of all creation who has given you everything that you need to live, everything that you have survived upon. So all things come from God's hand. We see a second fact stated in these verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 that the power to enjoy what we have acquired comes from God as well. Think about that for a second. The power to enjoy what you gain in this life is a gift from God as well. Unfortunately, we see this hypothetical man that is described to us here. God has not given the power to enjoy his resources to this man. So he has many things. Others probably envy him. He has accumulated much, but he cannot seem to be able to enjoy it. 
Though God has granted the man the power to get what he desires, God has not given him the ability to be satisfied in it. Compare this to what we have seen recently in chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, where Solomon said, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given to him, for this is his lot. In other words, this is what God has for us, that we are to eat and drink, and this is the world that we live in, so we should learn to enjoy it. And verse 19 says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. And so ironically, as Solomon examines this fervent pursuit of satisfaction, which preoccupies the the mind of almost every living human being, we see part of the secret here that none of this will really satisfy you until you're trusting the Lord God who alone can give you a heart that can enjoy it, that can see it for what it is, that can really find contentment. Can you see how this presents a critical problem to anyone who attempts to find satisfaction under the sun? If they are operating independent of the one true God, how are they going to get the power to enjoy all the things they gather, whether it be wisdom or wealth or power or possessions? You can get all the stuff you want You can achieve your goals. You can excel above all the people around you. But if you hope to actually enjoy what you have done, if you hope to actually find contentment in where you are in life, there's only one place you can get that. It can only come as a gift from God the Father. I want you to think about for a second the consistency between this truth and the glorious truths of the gospel that we see on display in the New Testament. Most of you, if you've been around Christianity for long, are familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which is a very beautiful, concise statement of the way that God saves his people. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What is that saying? It's saying that the goodness of salvation is not something you can obtain. It is not something you can work for and gain for yourself. It isn't a reward to you. It is a gift from a generous God. This is so consistent with what we're learning here in Ecclesiastes. The gospel of grace is ever-present throughout the whole of Scripture. And here, then, it is a very clear picture woven through the often misunderstood book of Ecclesiastes where we find people trying to satisfy themselves and trying to find purpose and meaning and happiness, but they cannot find it unless they can get beyond the sun, unless they can connect with this God who is true and alone can unlock our ability to enjoy life fully. The spiritual life and the joy that comes with knowing God is God's gift to us. It's not a reward for performance. That Christ is the only conduit of that joy is not spelled out here explicitly in Ecclesiastes. But this principle of happiness being a fleeting shadow apart from Christ is a clear parallel to what the Son did for us on the cross at Calvary. He gave His life freely for those who would trust Him. He suffered and died not for those who deserved it, not for those who would be good enough to earn it. He died for sinners. He gifted them this understanding of life that changes everything. This is grace. The hypothetical man of chapter 6 does not have the capacity to enjoy what he has been given. 
<clears throat> now, there's a slight variation in the ways that most scholars interpret this. It could be that some hindrance in his life has kept him from being able to enjoy the good things that he's obtained. Maybe he doesn't have good enough health to enjoy it. He's wealthy now and he's got all these things, but he just he can't really experience it because he's sick or he's injured. Perhaps um, something has happened and he's now in jail and he can't experience the joy of it. Or perhaps he's just so busy working for it that he can never enjoy it. We've seen that in different places in Ecclesiastes, right? I think it is more likely, though, in the context of this passage, that the man cannot enjoy it because his life ends before he has a chance to really experience the blessing of what he has acquired. Why do I think that? Well, because the rest of this whole section goes in on to speculate on the effect of life's length on the dilemma of satisfaction. How does the length of our life affect whether we can have joy or not? <clears throat> we are beholden to the one and only being who has the capacity to deal with eternals. We don't have the capacity to deal with eternals apart from him. Life itself is a power that we cannot give ourselves. It can only be given by God. And only the author of creation knows how many days that we have. <clears throat> In fact, God does more than just know when your life will be over. He is the one who ordained it. He is the one who wrote it in his book. Psalm 139, 16. This uh, psalm is famous because it speaks of the gentle way that God creates human life and how important we are to him that we are knit together in our mother's womb, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But look what it says in verse 16. It says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How could God write every one of your days out unless he was the one who ordained how long your life would be? This God knows when it's game over. He knows when your time here on earth is done. James 4.15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we will live and do this or do that. We shouldn't just go around planning our life, expecting to have plenty more days ahead of us, plenty more years to fulfill our plans. We should have the attitude, if God so wills, then I will live and I will do this and I will hopefully achieve these things. But God may will differently. God may not will for you to live to the gray years of your life. God may call you sooner than that. He is the, the giver and the sustainer of life and he has every right to cut the silver cord when he sees that time is fit. So it is best to understand the difficulty of this man in Ecclesiastes 6 as follows. He has worked hard. He got the things that he thought would make him happy. But there is a great tragedy here because death puts an early end to all of his fun. All the work that he did ends up being enjoyed by somebody else. This is a reoccurring idea, isn't it? We've seen this before in Ecclesiastes. The frustration happens when you've done all this work, but you can't even enjoy it. Somebody else ends up taking what you worked so hard to acquire. I got to thinking as I was preparing this sermon... Someone might think, well, you know what? That means there's two people in every, every one of these equations that God mentions in the book of Ecclesiastes. Somebody who, who works hard but doesn't get to enjoy it. But there's also that other guy. There's that other guy who comes in behind him and takes all of his hard work and enjoys it for himself. So I figure a sharp-minded individual might think to themselves, if we see again and again that there's this pattern, then why don't I just aspire to be that other person? 
the one who receives without having to toil for, it, toil for it. Is that the right way to go through life? Maybe I should just hope to let somebody else do all the work and then I can enjoy myself because of all the good work that they've done. Maybe that's how I find contentment. And there are plenty of people in this world who are trying to play that game, friends. They're hoping to satisfy themselves without the associated sweat and hardship of working to earn good things. They want to sidestep the toil and simply receive the blessing from someone else. We see it in, in the number of fraudulent claims that are made each year regarding disability. People who are basically healthy but who know that the resources are available to them if they can just convince the government that they can no longer work. Those who are truly hindered, if you really have a medical condition that's keeping you from that, should feel no shame in getting help. Don't feel that this is here to beat you up. But those who are cheating the system should feel the weight of their dishonesty. They are trying to be this one who swoops in and benefits from the hardship and toil that someone else has to go through. We see it in children sometimes who grow up to be adults, but not really, right? They cling to their parents. They use up their inheritance like the prodigal son did, but they do so without ever even leaving the home or without ever having to feel the discomfort of the pig trough. Though they could support themselves in laziness, they depend upon their parents to such a degree that they hinder their mother and father from being able to really enjoy what they have worked to achieve. We see this all the time. There are many other examples. It is not a condition of the lower classes only. We see it in manufacturing when those with less than ethical business practices are willing to outsource manufacturing to the lowest bidder, even if that means that, that the remote workers that assemble their products will have to be paid a, a non-livable wage. They'll have to work in dangerous conditions to save money off the bottom line. Man is very good at trying to get someone else to do the hard work so that they themselves will prosper. Is that the right way to find satisfaction in life? Though this may seem like an economical way to get what you want, the truth remains. That life strategy will no more likely result in satisfaction or contentment than any other. The ability to enjoy this life comes only from the hand of God. It doesn't come from hard work, and it doesn't come from trickery either. There are those who believe that they have obtained satisfaction. There are those who live with no regard to God who will tell you that they're doing well. They will tell you that they're content, that they are satisfied, but the truth is otherwise. Even if they believe themselves to be they may be happy with their station for a moment, but how long can that charade of satisfaction last? How long can a person convince themselves that the fleeting things of the world are enough for them? Eventually, they're going to be faced with the facts. This life, no matter how much we try to enjoy it, will not last forever. All of us may, may, must face that precipice of life's final finish line. Longevity of life and freedom to do what we want with our wealth is not itself the answer to life's seeming futility. What if man is able to live long? What if someone was able to, to have a long, long life, even beyond what we, we know or are experiencing here ourselves? Is it then worth it to shun God and, and live selfishly? Solomon expands the boundaries of this hypothetical exercise in verses 3 and 6. He says, if the man has a hundred children... 
If a man enjoys a long life, he goes on to see, even if he lives for 2,000 years. For many of Solomon's readers, these two conditions represent the top two blessings a man can pray for. To have many children, a big, prosperous family, to pass on your genes and your legacy, and to live a long life on earth. That's the focus of many people who are walking around in this world right now, is to have a blessed family, and to live a long, long life as long as they can. Who does not value lengthy life? If eat and drink and be merry are blessings for those who toil, then it just goes to reason that the longer you live, the more you can eat and drink and be happy, the more you can enjoy this life. More is better, isn't it? But is it enough? Is the best thing that we can hope for a long life here on earth? Even if a man lives 2,000 years, he must still face the reality that a life lived apart from God cannot bring enduring satisfaction. Even 2,000 years of living what would seem to be the good life would still end the same way. He reminds us at the end of this passage, do not all go to the one place. He's not speaking of heaven there. He's speaking of the grave. Do we not all have to face death eventually? Running from God will never be a winning strategy, whether you can run just a short time or 2,000 years. Apart from God, the man who has a long life would still enjoy no true good, says Solomon. The humbling reality is that a life lived apart from God is a meaningless experience. If we do all that we can to make our life what we want it to be, and yet we do not honor God as the one who reigns over the thrones of our lives, then we have missed the whole point of our being. If we do all that we can to make our life what we want it to be, and yet we do not honor God as the one sovereign God who reigns over all, then we are wasting our breath. I find the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession very helpful here. It's a tool that we use to, to teach our children or to teach ourselves what really the Scripture says to us. It's all based in the Word. And so a question is posed and then the answer is given. The question is, what is the chief end of man? What is the reason we are here on earth? It's the question that, in many ways, Ecclesiastes is asking us. And in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How different is that than the heart and passion of the average man in this world who is living solely to make himself happy, solely to satisfy his own needs, solely to try to make life look as much like he wants it to be as possible. And yet here from Scripture, we see that the catechism is true. Man's chief ends is to glorify God. And in doing that, in fulfilling what we were designed to be, we will then enjoy Him forever. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Psalm 73, 24 through 26. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but that doesn't need to worry me. Are you ready for this inevitable experience that all of us must one day face? Are you ready to die? Have you thought about the fact that as blessed as it is to live in this world that God has given to us, that one day it will be over and true life will begin, eternal life will begin. If we do all that we can to make our life what we want it to be, and yet we do not honor God as the one who reigns over the throne of our lives, then we will have missed the whole point of our existence. We will have failed to fulfill our creative ordinance, the reason why God made us. This is such an important point that Solomon compares the one who doesn't care to know God. He compares him to one of the saddest stories in human existence, the stillborn child. And as we think about this concept and this comparison that Solomon's made, we've got to do that with a gentleness, right? Because there are many people here who've probably experienced what that's like. Their hearts have been broken when the anticipation of joy and new life was met with silence and an unbeating heart. This is not shared by Solomon in order to make that seem like a flippant small thing. Rather, he knows the weight of that experience when a little one is born and never even draws a breath. He knows how important that is, and yet he compares that to the life of one who can live maybe even 2,000 years and yet doesn't care to glorify God. He says it would be better for you if you were like that stillborn child. Because the life that you lived, the 2,000 years that you walked out on this planet gave no glory to the one who put you here. You have completely missed the reason you were made. And you've had to endure 2,000 years of trying to convince yourself that you're just fine. That it's okay. That you are happy after all. And you all know what that's like. You know what it's like to be broken, but to try to convince yourself that you're not. What a heartache it is to endure that without a God who says, I will make right what you cannot make right. That newborn ba- or that stillborn babe has never dishonored God in action, though he's born with a sinful, sinful spirit, has never been able to fool himself into thinking that he was satisfied apart from God. He's never experienced the sting of, of, of letdown when the things of the world that he thought would make them happy didn't make him happy in the end and and left him feeling lost and empty and, and cold inside. Solomon wants us to see how serious it is to walk through life apart from God and to think we can be happy in that state. Death. The destination is common to all regardless of the time that it takes to get there. We must all die. But if your goal is to find satisfaction in this life apart from God, then you will not die well. None of us knows when our days will come to an end. You may live well into what we would consider your golden years. You might enjoy your retirement for several decades before passing quietly in your sleep without much discomfort or suffering. Or you may be surprised one day by an unexpected accident that sweeps you away from life here on earth in the blink of an eye. Perhaps in your middle years, long before you expect it to expire, some serious illness or injury will lead to an early exit. But when God decides it is time for you to go, what will the condition of your heart be? 
your instinctual reactions in those times when you face your last breaths will tell a true story about what is important to you. Are you ready for that story to be told to the world? Will your passing be marked by desperation, by a heart that longs again for the world that is about to be taken away from them? If all that you love is here on earth, then death represents the prospect of losing everything. You will beg and plead for the doctors to do whatever they can do, to go whatever lengths possible, just that you might have a few more fleeting moments here on earth, knowing in your heart that this earth is all that you've accounted for. Will that be you? I, I pray it will not. As the context of your whole idea of earthly good begins to slip out of your hands, will you be able to see that there is far better beyond this life for those who trust in Jesus Christ and are called according to his good purposes? He who denies the light of the world must make the most of fumbling around in darkness. But when the lamp of life is extinguished, what remains for him? Seek that light now. Ready yourself for the end that every man must face. Will your passing be defined by fear? Fear of the loss of the fading things that you own. Fear of the semblance of control that you thought that you had over your life slipping away from you. Sadly, many will face the dread of judgment. They will know in their hearts, their heart of hearts, that God is real and that He has demanded things of that which He has created. They will know in their heart of hearts that they have offended Him and rebelled against Him. And so as the end draws near, they will have no answer if they don't have Christ. Everyone knows there is a God and our conscience is enough aware of the truth to know that we have broken God's law and are guilty before Him. We all know that we have sinned. And though we may deny it for the whole of our life, that denial will ring hollow when our days on earth grow short. Will the end of your life be darkened by the shadow of regret? Your carefree rebellion here on earth won't be so carefree when you know that the judge sits on his throne in the next room. And an, an eternal reckoning is just minutes away. The one who troubles, sorry, the one who trades in the noble calling of considering others' needs above their own needs, who sacrifices closeness with their family for the profits that flow from a selfishness, they will see how wrong they were in their very last days on earth. They will add up all the time and energy they spent on worthless things, and they'll see what a senseless investment it was. As Lot and his family you might recall, we're headed out of Sodom and Gomorrah, this place that God condemned as wicked and evil and not worth saving, as He spared them and said, leave that place before my destruction comes. Will you be as Lot's wife, who couldn't help but turn back to this world that was falling apart with a heart full of regret what she was losing? Scripture tells us that she was turned instantly to a pillar of salt, a statue of sorts, a monument of the life one who regrets living for worldly things and not for things above. Will your lack of clarity cause you great confusion and worry? Even one who follows after God and has the Holy Spirit may find the end of their life to be a frightening trial if they have not bothered to pursue Christ to the extent that they've gained a solid understanding of what to expect when this life is done. 
Do you know God well enough to be very confident as you march towards the end of your life here on earth? Do you have an assurance that he who began a good work in you will finish it, will carry it on to completion? Do you believe that your feeble works are what supports your salvation? Or do you have a great understanding that God is the one who saves and sustains you to the very end? If we do not care for doctrine, friends, if we are not seeking the truth of God's word, then even a believer can march towards death with shaky feet and shaky hands, not really sure what's to happen. But when you seek the Lord God, and you let him shine the wonderful light of truth in your face, and you begin to understand and bask in the glory of who he is and what he has for us, as doctrine begins to synthesize, and you begin to see, wow, this God who I'm worshiping is a God who has it all figured out. And there are details here that I didn't know before, that I know now, that make me rejoice all the more that this life isn't 2,000 years that I get to be in heaven with a Savior who loves me, that I get to leave this place which is so infected with grievous evil, that one day I will, I will see the honor and the, the glory of receiving for God, from God a new body, a body that is properly equipped to care for Him, to worship Him forever. Doctrine helps us to be confident in those last days. And if I remain ignorant to this God who has saved me and who loves me so then I cannot expect to have a heart filled with joy when my last days come. No matter how much life God chooses to give to you, if your faith rests in His ability to rule well, then you will know that however many days He chose to give to you, it was enough. It was the right amount. He ordains our minutes. He ordains the length of our life. Will He give us too little? Absolutely not. Will he let it drag on too long? No, he won't. And I know the hurt of watching a loved one who seems to be wasting away, who seems to be withering. You just think, God, take them home. But God has a reason for every bit of this. And in light of the beauty of glory, in light of eternity, that one who suffered for a time will think it's such a small thing compared to what they have now in the hands of Christ. To one who trusts in Jesus, the end is in reality a wonderful beginning, one that we can thank God for, one that will come in His perfect timing. Would you bow with me as we pray? Mighty God, death is a serious subject, Lord. But we cannot afford to put it off forever. We must think about our mortality, about the brevity of our time here on earth. So God, I pray that the wisdom of Solomon would strengthen our wisdom today. That as we consider the things that we have been shown in verses 1 through 6 here in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, that we would want to prepare ourselves for the transition that awaits. God, none of us should be eager for death. That's not appropriate, God. You've got us here for a reason. But we don't need to fear it. We don't need to dread it, Lord God. We can be content that whatever many days you have given to us, Lord, it's the right amount. Yours, O oh Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O oh Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. And we pray today that you would exalt yourself in our lives 
that we might fulfill the design for which you created us. This is your breath in our lungs. So let us pour out praise to you in response to your grace and your kindness and your mercy. We pray this all through the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.